So last Sunday's message and today's message have created an accidental mini-series of sorts uh, about the earliest followers of Jesus. While usually we don't talk about the early church until after its baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the narrative lectionary has us dipping in a bit early this year during the season of Easter. Perhaps it's because the miracle of resurrection, the nature of Easter itself, is doing a new thing. A thing that hadn't been done before. That same divine love which lifted Christ's grave clothes and rolled away the stone was now upending the lives and trajectories of Jesus' first followers. Nothing is ever the same again after resurrection. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, are mighty subversive words. When dead things don't stay dead and boundaries are obliterated, anything is possible. Like even the salvation of God being made available to you and I, to people who are not descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people, the Jews. That was the earth-shattering revelation of last Sunday's message. Peter, Jesus' personal hype man and one of his best friends, had a dream in which the Spirit of God was inviting him to kill and eat an animal. The problem for Peter was that the menu was not kosher. That is, it broke with Jewish dietary laws. Listen, if it hasn't been abundantly clear in the almost 14 years that I've stood in this pulpit, I'm a big fan of Peter's. I get him. His unbridled commitment and passion without always thinking it through first, I get it. Last Sunday in Acts 10, Peter thought he was doing the right thing by denying the dream buffet. Can you blame him? How is that any different than the experiences of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, in a sleepy, hungry haze, if a sheet came down before you covered in all sorts of squirming, flailing animals and a disembodied voice invited you to kill and eat anything in front of you, wouldn't that sound eerily familiar? Bit of a red flag. It's giving serpent in the Garden of Eden or tempter in the wilderness vibes. I'm certain Peter felt he was doing the right thing by denying the offer, but then he hears the words, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this rattles him, of course. What does that even mean? What does that look like? But man, does the penny ever drop for him when later that day he gets a visitor at the door asking him to come and speak to the Roman centurion Cornelius and his household Gentiles hearing that it was a holy angel who had instructed Cornelius to make this formal invitation Peter decided against his better judgment to go and as he talked with him it says in Acts 27 he went in and found that many had assembled and Peter said to him you yourselves know that it is unlawful for me to be here that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. God shows no partiality. Mic drop, or penny drop for Peter. 
In hindsight, that vision of the sheep with the animals made sense. In hindsight, it was time to drop the rigorous boundaries set by the law and to open hearts and minds to the radical working of the Holy Spirit. Thus began the great mission to the Gentiles. Now, in case you missed it, in Rich and Reverend Jan's scripture reading last week, Peter did baptize Cornelius and his entire household. And who better to do it than ask for forgiveness instead of permission, Peter? This was groundbreaking. And it started because Peter was listening to the Spirit. But more than that, the Spirit was speaking through many sources, orchestrating the whole thing from jostling Cornelius to speaking through his messengers to the vision to Peter and then the gathering of the apostle with the Gentile household. The whole of Acts 10 is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the players on the stage are acting in response to this wild essence of God. In fact, it might be the best way to understand the book of Acts in its entirety. Of people who love Jesus and want to figure out what it means to follow him, responding to the wild, untamed whirlwind of the Holy Spirit. A spirit who pulls and pushes as Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. There's a reason you don't hear a whole lot of Presbyterian sermons about the Holy Spirit. She doesn't follow a book of rules or forms. There is no printed agenda, org chart, or defined benchmarks and deadlines. There is no good and decent order when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Just like strap in. You can res resist it if you want, or you can close your eyes and let it guide you. The thought of which is either liberating or terrifying. I can feel some of you having a rise in blood pressure. Can we just go back to Jesus stories? Um, he's a bit more relatable, st stable, uh, dependable. The spirit feels a little bit chaotic. Good, good, but disorderly. And we're Presbyterians up in here. Sorry, folks, we're in the book of Acts, and the Spirit is large and in charge. Perhaps that's why we need Acts 13. At face value, what Connie read today, it doesn't seem like much, or even Monica's story. Like, what was that, a travel itinerary? I guess. Paul bopping about from one place to another, teaching and preaching about Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah or Christ of God. A man might I remind you that Paul never even met in his life? <laughs> Saul hunted Jesus' followers for sport, believing them to be the latest fringe cult to develop among the Jewish people, a scourge, a disease to be obliterated, until the resurrected Jesus interrupted his persecution parade and told him to cut it out. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 9, the chapter just before the one about Peter and Cornelius. 
fascinating when you put 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 together. What's fascinating about the event we call the conversion of Saul is how many people are involved. This is no personal salvation moment. Saul never prayed anything like what a modern evangelical would call the sinner's prayer. He didn't formally accept Jesus into his heart. Saul was struck blind, became immediately dependent on his travel companions for support, and awaited the arrival of a stranger called Ananias, who against his better judgment showed up three days later, saying this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And I'll give you one guess, only one, as to who is behind all of this. If you guessed the Holy Spirit, you win and you get an extra cookie at coffee hour. She was the one present with Christ on the road to Damascus uh, when they encountered Saul. The one guiding Saul's travel companions. And definitely the one who sent Ananias to heal his enemy and persecutor. The Holy Spirit was present in Saul's change of heart, in his baptism, and then his powerful preaching and teaching throughout Damascus. And it was the Holy Spirit who was behind the plan to sneak Saul out of the city and the local Jewish folk had set out to kill him, which becomes sort of a recurring issue for him wherever he goes. There's an old African-American jubilee song, a spiritual, which was sung by Harriet Tubman and those like her called Wade in the Water. John's actually done it here before uh, quite a few times. I love it, Wade in the Water. The song lyrics were code to tell escaping enslaved people to get off the trail and into the water to make sure that the dogs of the slave catchers couldn't sniff out their trail. Wade in the water, wade in the water, children, wade in the water. God's going to trouble the water. And that last line, which has countless profound meanings, depending on who is singing it and in what context, always reminds me of the work of the Holy Spirit especially here in Acts. God's going to trouble the water. We love a calm body of water. We love a serene river. We love a smooth lake, a calm sea. But God's going to trouble the water. All over the book of Acts, the Spirit is stirring up commotion, frankly, breaking with tradition, creating holy chaos, and upending expectations. And the people, the disciples, the apostles, they're just trying to keep up. Wade in the water, children. Just know that God's going to trouble it. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of Acts is titled, Intrusive God, Disruptive Gospel. You cannot get a better title for a book on the book of Acts than that. Intrusive God, disruptive gospel. 
by Matthew Skinner. It's a great book. Pick it up. What does all of this have to do with Acts 13 and Paul's travel log? Well, here's what. It demonstrates for us, without a shadow of a doubt, that this life of faith, of discipleship, of gospel living, is not a solitary affair. You'll, t you'll hear people talk about their faith is deeply personal. Well, that's fine, but it cannot be private. It's not meant to be private, because it's meant to be communal. From the very beginning, it has been a communal experience. It relies on interdependence. From the beginning of Saul's missionary work, he has been fully dependent on community, on travel companions. That's why Monica told this story. Go back and listen to it again. Saul has been dependent on travel companions, debate partners, co-missionaries, hosts, and their hospitality. Rarely was Saul, later called Paul, ever alone. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's by design. I think it's foundational and fundamental to the core of what it means to be a follower of Christ Jesus. It means community and partnership and interdependence, mutual aid, even through disagreement, even sometimes when it goes against our better judgment. One read through the book of Acts will tell you that there was never, ever one single agreed-upon way to follow Jesus. I'll let you mull that over for a second. I mean, even the fact that we have four Gospels that aren't all completely aligned should tell us something. Right after the death and resurrection and ascension and the Pentecost moment and the church exploded... There was never, ever a single agreed-upon roadmap. Peter had one idea about what it meant, and then it got changed when that sheep vision happened, and suddenly he's baptizing Gentiles. Paul had a completely different idea of what it meant to follow Jesus. And then you had James, Peter's, or Jesus' younger half-brother. You'd think he would be the authority on this. He had another way that he felt was the right way to follow Jesus. That's, that's at least three different roads that diverged shortly after Jesus' ascension. And yet, and yet, look how all three have survived to today, captured in all their importance and grace in our scriptures. And who was behind them all? The Holy Spirit, troubling the waters. Christianity has never, ever been a uniform thing. And that should humble us a little bit, shouldn't it? It has always been a beautiful, complicated, messy, loving thing. Why do you think Paul had to write so many letters to these early Christian communities? It's because nobody knew quite what they were doing or how to do it. Perhaps more accurately, they all believed in the same. But that belief was acted out differently in each community. And it changed every time a new person joined them. 
Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. What does that mean, Jesus? What does that look like? How does that play out? With people who look at and think like us, easy, no problem. Well, what about with people who are different than us? who have a different life experience than us, different expectations in the world than us, a different way of understanding things than us. Tricky. And yet, here's the Holy Spirit troubling the waters all over the book of Acts by creating interdependence between people who wouldn't normally have existed in one another's orbits. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female, get rid of the binaries, erase the lines, sit down and break bread for heaven's sake. Care for one another and the communities around you. Do it together in partnership. Iron sharpens iron, you know the saying, plus it's biblical. It isn't just a nice idea, it's the lifeblood of the body of Christ. It's going to be messy, it's going to be slower than you would like it to go. It means making the table longer and longer and longer and the circle wider and wider and wider. It's inefficient and sometimes it's disorganized. But the spirit is all over this thing, even today, before, during, and after. The book of Acts has stripped away any ambiguity about who is driving this story and our story today. This is the Spirit's doing, the Spirit's work. By this chapter, we find the Spirit speaking directly through and to the disciples. So what does that look like for you? What does it look like for us as a church? What does it mean to lean into partnership, grace, patience, love, kindness. Stop holding things so tightly. They are not yours. They are not mine. The resources, the money, the time, the gifts, they are God's. And we are conduits called to work together. So what does that look like? To be called as partners in Christ's service. It's not an easy answer. It is a journey that we have to live out every day. And sometimes we trip and stumble. But if we're doing this thing right, there's someone on the other side to pick us up. We are called as partners in Christ's service. To God be all the glory. Amen.